From Booksmart Studios, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and given the state of things right now, I think it would be remiss of me not to devote an episode of Lexicon Valley to the Ukrainian language. That's because, for one, it's not hard not to know a whole lot about it if you aren't of the relevant sphere. And also there are some misunderstandings about Ukrainian, particularly within that sphere that get around, that we need to clear up. For starters, Ukrainian is a Slavic language. Russian is one too, and Russian is the Slavic language that has the most influence and the most speakers. And there's been a tendency in the Russian literature, in the Russian government, in Russian tradition, to think of Ukrainian as just a kind of Russian. This is something that you can pick up if you're listening or even not particularly listening. There has even been a tradition of calling Ukrainian Little Russian. And in terms of how languages work and how languages resemble each other and don't and the distance of languages from one another, that just isn't true. And so, for example, I can get about, you know, about half of a Russian conversation if it isn't too fast and if it's about basic things. I have loved the language for a long time, as my longtime listeners know. And these days, of course, I get practice using it with my sweetheart. But even way back 10, 15 years ago, when I lived in Jersey City, I had this weird experience. I would walk around in the neighborhood and I would see these usually elderly Russian-speaking couples. And because I'm crazy, I would listen and try to see how much I could get. And I found that again and again, over the first couple of years that I lived there, I couldn't get a word of what these people were saying. And I remember thinking, wow, I must really be slipping with my Russian because I'm listening to these people and I have no blessed idea. Not getting half, not getting a third, I'm just lost. Then one day I realized, I put two and two together, I thought about the fact that there were certain Ukrainian institutions in the neighborhood, and I realized, wait, the reason I can't understand them is because they're not speaking Russian, they're speaking Ukrainian. And once I understood that, I realized, wait, okay, yes. So that's how different the languages are. Or a similar experience I had um, about three or four years ago, I was on the subway here in New York, you spend your life doing that, and I happened to look over someone's shoulder, and they were reading a Russian book. Or so I thought. And I started you know, challenging myself and you know, trying to read the page and couldn't get a word. I had a sense of what the grammar was. I knew what a noun was and what a verb was, but I could not get a word. Or maybe I got the occasional word. And I thought once again, boy, I must be slipping or I must be having a stroke. Then I thought, well, no, wait a minute. This is like Jersey City. I'll bet it's Ukrainian. And then I realized from certain letters, written letters that are different, that this was not a page of Russian. It was a page of Ukrainian, and I couldn't get it, meaning that this is not little Russian. This is a separate language. And so it's fair to say that Russian and Ukrainian are very closely related. There is definitely similarity. They are close sister languages. I would venture to say, and this is eyeballing, <laughs> earballing, but I would say that the two are a little closer than Spanish and Portuguese, but much further apart than something like Norwegian and Swedish. Ukrainian is not in any objective sense just a kind of Russian or something that if you shook everything up would just be classified as a dialect of Russian or it would be rather forced. It's a separate language. And, you know, as with all languages, I see a foreign language and I, and I want it. I want to, I want to bite it. I want to tr 
try it. And I remember I had um, a teacher, a music teacher in my school who came in. This would have been about 1971. And it was one of the foundational experiences that I had where I was blown away and assumed everybody else was. And as I've lived longer, I've realized, no, this just meant that I was strange. The teacher sang Frere Jacques, and then she did it in three other languages. And I thought this was just amazing. She did French, she did Spanish, and she did German. And to me, the idea that you would be singing the same song, except with words that other people understand and that I don't, that was just amazing to me. And so with Ukrainian, the first thing I think is if I'm going to participate, I wonder how to sing Frerejaka in it. And there is Ukrainian Frerejaka. And Ukrainians, I apologize, but it goes something like this. Pratyivanya, pratyivanya, chitaspish, chitaspish. Chitta Chuyastvoni, Chitta Chuyastvoni, Ding Ding Don, Ding Ding Don. Now, what's interesting about this is the differences between, for example, Ukrainian and Russian. It is not Russian. So, for example, Ukrainian has a case that Russian basically doesn't have. By case, I mean that nominative is vanilla, genitive is possessive, then you have dative, to, like to the village. Then you've got the accusative, you have to mark things as objects, and then you have the prepositional, and so in the bathroom, in the haystack, I can't think of what anybody is in for some reason, but you have a special ending just for things like that. But then, in Ukrainian, there's what's called the vocative. It's what you use when you call people. You have a special ending for that. And so, for example, Bulgarian has this too, another Slavic language. And I know a Bulgarian named Aglika, and I remember hearing her father calling her, and he would say, Agliche, Agliche. Agliche isn't a nickname for Aglika. It's the way you call somebody named Aglika. So, Agliche. Well, Ukrainian has that too. And so, Bratya Ivanya, the ye is that you're calling Brother John. So, not just Brat Ivan, but Bratya Ivanya. That's kind of like saying, lo, <laughs> Ivan, or something like that. So Ukrainian, in that regard, is more complex than Russian, because Russian only has little bits and pieces. So, for example, the word for God is book. But when you say, my God, you say, bozhe moi, bozhe moi. And so, bozhe, that's the vocative for God in Russian. Ukrainian does that regularly. And so, Brother John is, be- oh, <laughs> Brother John. Or something as basic as this. And so the chitispish, sorry for not having a proper accent, but chitispish, the tispish is you sleep. The ch is interrogative. It makes it a question. So are you sleeping? So tispish, you're sleeping. Chitispish, are you sleeping? That ch in Russian would be li and it would go in a different place. So if you were going to say, are you sleeping? It would be spish li. And so, and that's sleeply you, sleeply you, in Ukrainian, li in Russian. Whole different particle goes in a different place. We're talking about a different grammar. So this isn't little Russian or quaint Russian. This is a language of its own. Those are the facts. And a fact can be a beautiful thing. And why I'm saying that is because that's a transition into our first musical cue. And yes, there is a song, a Broadway song called A Fact Can Be a Beautiful Thing. And it really is a piece of poetry. This is from Promises, Promises, which is the musical of 1969 based on the Billy Wilder film The Apartment. And it has a wonderful Burt Bacharach score. 
The lyrics by Hal David are really interesting. This is the lead character at a bar, and he's starting to canoodle with this interesting, (laughs) frowsy lady. And this is Jerry Orbach, yes, and Marion Mercer. And this is how they come on to each other with these very interesting observations, such as that a fact can be a beautiful thing. And it's just a very catchy song. Here it is. A fact can be a beautiful thing When the fact I am facing is you A fact can be a terrible thing When the dreams you've been dreaming Fall through, forget the past And think about the present Right now is everything Forget the past and Think about the present, the present's very pleasant. Who cares what the future will bring? There's just no predicting a thing. Don't wait for a miracle, because it's Christmas. Not the time to be alone with memories. Christmas is supposed to be a The Slavic family. Let's fit Ukrainian in. So, Indo-European. And as I often say, it's thought to have begun on the steps of, as it happens, Ukraine. And it branches off. So in the East, it becomes Persian and other Iranian languages. And then Sanskrit. And then other languages now spoken in India, such as Hindi and Bengali, etc. Then it goes west, and several branches are created, such as what is today the Romance languages, what is today the Germanic languages, the Celtic languages, and Greek and Albanian. And there is the Slavic group. The Slavic group is divided into three parts— Now, I could start by saying that Ukrainian is East Slavic, but even right then, we're we're getting too listy. What we're going to do is we're going to start further out, and then we're going to zero in on Ukrainian. And so, there is South Slavic. The South Slavic languages are actually a continuum. They smudge into each other. It's interesting. The South Slavic languages are what we associate with the former Yugoslavia and then Bulgaria. So you start at the top, you've got Slovenian, that's Melania's language. Then you have, I have to be careful here because of general cultural issues and conflicts, but there is Serbian and Croatian and Bosnian and Montenegrin. And suffice it to say that These are sometimes treated as different languages, but they're very, 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 very close. I have experienced couples communicating fluently, in one in Serbian and one in Croatian. But I'm not going to call it Serbo-Croatian, but those four. And then as you move further down, there's Macedonian and Bulgarian. There is a bleed. Slovenian is a little bit separate, but certainly the Serbo-Croatian, Bosnian, Montenegrin varieties slide into one another. You go from village to village, and language differs a little bit in each one. And after a while, people from one village can't understand the people 10 villages away. That's the way it is with many languages all over the world. That's a very normal situation. And so that's the South Slavic group. Then there's a West Slavic group. West Slavic is Czech and Slovak, which are very similar. Then there is Polish. 
And then there is Sorbian, which isn't doing very well. That's down to just some tens of thousands of speakers. You don't hear much about Sorbian beyond where it's spoken, which includes parts of Germany. But that's another West Slavic language. So South, the former Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. West is Polish, Czech, and Slovak in terms of what most people are aware of. And then there's East Slavic. For some reason, there's no North Slavic. I don't know why, but somehow you go north and it's just other stuff. It's kind of like in England. There's you know Sussex, that's South Six, and there's Wessex, West Six, and there's Essex, East Six, but there's no Norix. For some reason, it's Northumbria. Same thing with Slavic. You go north and you've got Uralic languages like Finnish. You've got Sami, which seems to keep coming up with us, but not, not North Slavic. Instead, there is East Slavic, and East Slavic is three languages, and that is Russian and Ukrainian and Belarusian. Belarusian. Not sure how one is to pronounce it these days, but those are the three. Now, that's kind of an oversimplification because, you know, there are always these continua, there are always these where-do-you-draw-the-line cases. And so there's a language called Rusin, which I think most people could fairly say is a kind of Ukrainian, but Rusins are a separate culture, there's a separate history, and so you could think of Rusin as a fourth East Slavic language. Where do you draw the line on that? It's not for me to say. And I should also mention that Slavic is technically not a subfamily of Indo-European, but it's a sub-subfamily. And that's because really the family is called Balto-Slavic, which to me always sounds like something that would be good to eat. It sounds like some kind, or not eat, it would be some kind of milk. Drink your Balto-Slavic. But Baltic are just a couple of languages today, Lithuanian and Latvian. There used to be Livonian, but today Lithuanian and Latvian are the living Baltic languages. So Baltic languages and Slavic languages are two branches of the Balto-Slavic family. Slavic is technically a sub-subfamily. And by the way, on Baltic, oh dear, we have an erratum here. Remember in the last show, I talked about how you can say snow is snowing in Latvian, and I said sniega sniega, that wonderful sentence where you know instantly that that's basically how somebody in the world says that it's snowing. You know what? That's not Latvian. You Lithuanians listening must have recognized that that was me butchering your language. Sniega sniega is Lithuanian. And I openly admit that I don't know enough about Baltic to be able to eyeball the difference between Lithuanian and Latvian. And the truth is that in this case, the source of the confusion is the original article. And it's something I completely understand. It's an article that uses data from a great many different languages. And I know from experience that when you do that, it's almost inevitable that there'll be little flubs. And I think that's what happened here in the article. But I was not in a position to know, but I have heard. So, Sniega Sniega, that is Lithuanian. That is is not Latvian. In any case, Slavic, along with Baltic, actually, has a certain honor. And that is, you don't hear this said much, but if you are a linguist and you kind of know your way around the languages of the world, it would be unlikely that you would deny that Slavic languages are some of the hardest languages in the world. 7,000 languages, if you were going to take the 100 or 200 hardest, Slavic would be among them. There are some other places where languages just get so hard that you wonder how anybody could learn them, and they really are very difficult to learn in any real way, past what's called the critical 
age, which is somewhere in the teens when your ability to master a language natively starts to ossify. There's some spoken in, for example, Sudan, languages like Dinka and Nuer, which are just, you know, bizarrely elaborate and difficult. There are some in Mexico that are hard in that same way and to that same degree. There is the Ket language spoken in the swamps of Siberia, which is so hard that grammarians have yet to exactly figure out what all of the rules are. Really incredibly difficult languages. There are some languages on the island of New Guinea that are so hard that you, you think that the people who are giving you the data are kidding, or I have heard that said by people who work on the languages. There are some languages of the Pacific Northwest here in the United States that are just, oh, goodness gracious. Slavic is of that class where just getting down what all the rules are and then all the halfway rules and all the exceptions and all the nuances that you have to master, they are some of the hardest languages in the world. So Ukrainian is in that group. And on the topic of unusual and unknown, which <laughs> we weren't necessarily, but you know what I'm doing. You know, Steely Dan is more variegated than you might think. My longtime listeners know I love Steely Dan. This is one of theirs that sounds almost like disco. This is from Countdown to Ecstasy way back in the 70s, but it's a good one. You don't hear King of the World much, and yet it's one of those songs that is stuck in my head all the time. You know, if I'm in some default situation where I'm bored and there's nothing to do, King of the World is one of those songs that starts running through my head despite the fact that I don't think of it as, you know, the greatest of art, but there's something catchy about it. No one cares about it except Steely Dan fans. Here is King of the World. way, way back. It emerges in the Kievan Rus region, this big splotch in what's now Russia and Ukraine and Belarus. And it's there that Ukrainian would have emerged. This is where the Slavic family probably began. And so West Slavic comes out from there, South Slavic comes out from there, but it probably all started in this East Slavic region. And Ukrainian first comes to us in an interesting way. It used to be, for example, that Latin was the language that was written and used in formal situations in what is now, for example, France and Spain and Italy and Portugal. You wrote in Latin and you lived in what was thought of as the colloquial sort of street language. And that was the way things typically were for a very long time in written languages history. It's relatively recent that a great many people can expect to write in the language that they speak. That's become more and more the case over the past several centuries. But there was a time when you wrote in Latin, even if you lived your whole life in what we now know as French. For Slavs, the equivalent of that 
was the Old Church Slavonic language. That was kind of the Latin of Slavs. And what Old Church Slavonic was, was Old Bulgarian, the beginning of what today is Bulgarian. But it used to be that if you were a Slav, you wrote and read in OCS, as it's sometimes called, and then you lived your life in you know, what became Polish or what became Ukrainian, for example. The first Ukrainian that you see is in ancient Old Church Slavonic manuscripts, where, because it's not the language people speak, people would try to help themselves, even official literate people, and you see little Ukrainian translations popping up in some sources. And so that's the first Ukrainian that you see where it's written in Old Church Slavonic, but then somebody has marginalia in what we can see is early Ukrainian. And that is earlier than the Russian versions of this. And pretty soon you have Ukrainian names like Oksana, which is from a Greek word meaning hospitable, and Ukrainian has an interesting history because for a long time, a lot of where it's spoken is in Lithuania, there's Lithuanian again, and Poland. And so, especially Polish gave Ukrainian a lot of its vocabulary, and that's a lot of what distinguishes it from Russian. You're sitting there looking over somebody's shoulder, trying to read their novel, and you can't get any. A lot of this because a lot of those words are Polish as opposed to the ones that are in Russian. Heavy Polish overlay. And then there is also, because of that, a continuum in this aspect, too, between Ukrainian and Polish. And so there are varieties where it will be hard to say whether somebody is speaking Ukrainian or Polish because of that old relationship. Very common. And so, for example, Dutch and German used to be like this. It used to be that you start with Dutch and then you go east and you go village to village to village and gradually it shades into German. Now, those village languages are going extinct very quickly throughout Europe. And so the situation isn't what it used to be. But it was this way with Romance too. It used to be Portuguese gradually bled into Spanish and Spanish bled into languages like Catalan and Provençal and those bled into French and then French bled into languages spoken in the mountains that seem like French and Italian having children, and that's because it's becoming Italian. That's the way romance used to be. It's this continuum business. And you have one of those between Ukrainian and Polish as well. And, you know, here's a little little trivia point. You know how sometimes people talk about things and they just assume that you know and nobody cares and you feel a little left out and you're a little embarrassed? For me, one of those has often been Galicia. People talk about how they have Galician ancestry. Now, I know about Galicia in Iberia. It's that part of Spain that's up on top of Portugal. And so that's Galicia, and they, they speak a kind of Portuguese up in Galicia, even though it's part of Spain. But then when you listen to, for example, many Jewish people saying, well, you know, my great-great-uncle was Galician. And I always kind of think, what's, what's Galicia? At least I used to. Galicia is a region that today is split between Poland and Ukraine. And so you have that region. That's what Galicia was, a different route from the Galicia that's referred to in Iberia. They're completely different words that happen to come out the same way. In any case, Ukrainian and Russian are different from early on. 1654, the Cossacks, they swear fealty to Russia at the Pityaslav Council. And at that council, it's documented that there were translators needed between Russian and Ukrainian. So Ukrainian was not just some cute way of speaking Russian. It was a thing of itself. The Cossacks, they were military. 
And this is the Gershwin brothers writing a very quick little military song. This is a general. I just want to throw this in. This shows how you know George Gershwin could write a catchy tune even for something as stupid as this. This is from Let Him Eat Cake in 1933. This is a recording from the 80s. And it's just about a general who brushed his teeth. I brushed my teeth and washed my face and had a fine shampoo. What more can a general do when his troops are on review? Ukrainian. It used to be called, I should say, Ruthenian by outsiders until until the 20th century. And Ruthenian is a way of saying Rusinian. So it's not about Ruth as in the biblical figure or something like that, but it's like Rusinian and, and the sound changes. But you'll often see it called Ruthenian in early sources as opposed to Russian. And Ukrainian has a particularly edgy relationship to Russian because not only has it often been seen as just some quaint kind of Russian, but it was actively suppressed by Russia in the 1800s in particular. And that's especially in the central and the eastern part. Then even after that official suppression, in the 20th century, Russian has been dominant in Ukraine apart from the Western part. And people have associated it with being cosmopolitan, with business opportunity, with prestige. And so there have been many Ukrainians who speak Russian better than they speak Ukrainian. So there's that edgy relationship between the two. In the West is where Ukrainian has always flowered, where a lot of the literature has been produced, and there it's been able to be itself. But in a lot of the country of Ukraine, Russian has been dominant. And so you can meet somebody who's from Ukraine and find that they're more comfortable in Russian than Ukrainian, or sometimes they don't really speak Ukrainian at all. And so, for example, the captain of Ukraine, who we're hearing from so much now, Volodymyr Zelensky, he is from central Ukraine. And for that reason, he's Russian dominant. He speaks Ukrainian, but Russian is the language that I would presume he has dreamt in, perhaps until recently. That's a common situation where a few enormous languages in the world tend to dominate the smaller ones. I'm always saying that there are 7,000 languages, but they're status issues. And especially with modern media, especially with increasing education, the big giant languages have a way of threatening the smaller ones and discouraging parents from passing the smaller ones on to kids. So there is, as we've discussed on some episodes of this show, an endangered language crisis. A great many of the world's languages and in fact, arguably most, are under threat because the big languages have a way of eating the smaller ones. Ukrainian is going to be fine. Ukrainian is not in danger of going extinct. But Russian has had a very dominant relationship over it, particularly in non-Western Ukraine, such that some people have wondered what the future of the language there was. I hope that I've done my job here. We're seeing these terrible things happening in Ukraine. And you might kind of think, huh, well, what are they what are they speaking? Oh, I guess, well, it's Ukraine. They're speaking Ukrainian. Well, that alone won't do. And if you listen to this podcast, you want to know a little more than that they speak a language that has the same name as the country that these things are happening in. 
And so, the language of the country currently under invasion has 45 million speakers, including overseas Ukrainian communities. It has a written history of over a thousand years at this point, and it's one of the hardest languages in the world to learn after the age of 15. And that is Lexicon Valley's Valentine to Ukrainian. If you'd like to leave a comment or check out our other great podcasts at Booksmart, Banished, and Bully Pulpit, or subscribe, and you should you should subscribe, please visit booksmartstudios.org. Our producers are Matthew Schwartz and, as always, Mike Volo. Go to booksmartstudios at gmail.com and give me questions, which I will answer in our bonus segment for our subscribers. Our theme music was created by Harvest Creative Services. It's so catchy. Those sister podcasts, again, are Banished, about cancel culture, and Bully Pulpit, about much else. And I am John McWhorter.